Esther chapter 6, as we continue our journey through the book of Esther. If you're new with us tonight, we have been uh, going through Esther now for seven messages. Tonight is the seventh, and we're talking about the unseen hand of God. I pointed out that the name of God is never mentioned in the book of Esther, and yet God is seen on every single page in the book of Esther. He's working behind the scenes. He's working through people. He's working through circumstances to accomplish his purposes and to save his people. It's a, uh, it's a wonderful drama that plays out in the Old Testament. If you've not had an opportunity to sit down and read through the entire book of Esther before, uh, I would encourage you to do that. Read it through maybe in several uh, translations. It's uh, quite a fascinating story. Now tonight we're going to look at the subject matter of great reversals. Great reversals. Pick up reading with me in verse 1 of chapter 6. It says, On that night the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of Uh, memorial deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in. And the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. Let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, And do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Jeresh and all the friends every all his friends everywhere. 
that everything that had happened to him, then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. I want you to listen a moment to the book of James. James in chapter 4 speaks about the sin of presumption. Now don't misunderstand, there is little in common between those to whom James wrote and Haman in the book of Esther. You see, James is writing to Christian businessmen while Haman is an evil unbeliever. And so in no way am I comparing the characters. But nonetheless, the book of James addresses the sin of presumption. And he points out that even Christians can be sucked in by it. We can get to the point of saying, I'm going to get up tomorrow and I'm going to go here and I'm going to do this or that. And James says, you don't know that. You may not even live until tomorrow. Don't you know that your life is just a vapor? Listen to how James puts it. He says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and we'll spend a year there and we'll trade and we'll make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. And so instead you ought to say if the Lord wills we will live and do this or that. As it is you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. His point there is we need to live according to the will of God. And we need to realize that every moment that we have is in God's hands. Our lives are in God's hands. And so we dare not presume to know what a day brings. We don't know what a day will bring forth. Well, Haman is a presumptuous man. Not only is he a presumptuous man, Haman is a wicked man. And again, in that regard, he's very much unlike James's audience. But he's presumptuous nonetheless. Haman thinks he's in charge. He thinks he knows what life holds. And he thinks he's in charge when it comes to the life of Mordecai and Mordecai's people. Well, we're going to see tonight he's going he's to learn otherwise the hard way. Now, you may have seen signs before that say, today is the first day of the rest of your life. If anybody would have said that to Haman as he left home that morning, they would have been dead wrong. Today is the last day of the rest of your life would have been a sign that would have been much more appropriate. Do you ever wonder what people might do today if they honestly believed that today was their last day. You think it would change the way that we live? If you got up in the morning knowing that tomorrow was your last day, 
Would it change what you do tonight and tomorrow? I think it would. I think it would change our lives a great deal. I wonder if Haman would have changed. Well, what we see in in chapter 6 tonight is that God is in charge. Even believers who are presumptuous can be quickly humbled. And if believers who are presumptuous can be quickly humbled, this is even more true for unbelievers who find that their plans are contrary to God's plans. Now the first thing I want you to see with me tonight is, uh, is a night of discovery. A night of discovery. Look again with me beginning in verse 1. It says... On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king, and it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bictana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. Now, as chapter 6 opens, we see a very fascinating thing here. And what is it? It's the fact that the king is unable to sleep. He's got a case of insomnia. God's working on him. And what's so remarkable about his case of insomnia is how chapter 5 closed. You remember how chapter 5 closed? Haman had gone home after meeting with Xerxes and Esther. He had gone home and told his wife, you know, I, I went to this banquet today, Esther had for us, and nobody else was invited but me. I was the only one. And what's more, she's invited me back again tomorrow. And he said, and yet all of this means nothing to me as long as Mordecai, the Jew, will not bow to me and will not pay homage to me. And remember what they told him to do, build a gallows. And have him hanged on it. So he said, that's a good idea. That's what I'm going to do. And so he had his men build the gallows and had it all ready. Haman's quite proud of himself. He's feeling about as important as a man can feel. But again, he's not satisfied. He's not content. He's got all of this power. He's got all of this position in life, and we can assume he's got anything at his fingertips that he wants, and yet he's still not satisfied because of Mordecai. Well, he can't wait till the next morning. He probably set his clock early so he could get up and get a jump on the day and have Mordecai executed. But you know, unknown to him, the king can't sleep. You know, the Bible says that God neither slumbers nor sleeps. God's always watching over his children. And you know what that means? That means that Haman's wicked schemes are not unknown to God. Folks, we better learn an important lesson there. God knows our way. Our way is not hidden from the Lord. 
Remember what King David said about that in Psalm 139? If I go east, God is there. If I go west, God's there. If I go north, God's there. If I go south, God's there. If I ascend up into the heavens, God's there. If I go down into the very pits of the earth, down into the depths of Sheol, God is there. There is nowhere that I can get away from God. And of course, David was very comforted by that. And it ought to comfort God's children to know that God knows everything about us. But the wicked better be warned because guess what? God knows everything about them too. There's no secrets with God. He knows everything. Here's Haman. He's concocting this evil scheme. He's already set the course in motion to have all this done. So, so this very day, he can have Mordecai hanged. He, he's... he's He's plotted all this, schemed all of this with the help of his wife and his friends. And he doesn't realize that God knows. And God's at work behind the scenes. Well, while Haman is plotting, the king has insomnia. You think that's an accident? You think that's a coincidence? Absolutely not. Folks... The king's insomnia is nothing short of the very work of God itself. God works in many ways. And sometimes God's ways are mysterious, aren't they? But know this, God is at work. Even in small ways, God is at work. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 5. He said... My father is working up to this very hour, and I too am working. God is always working. He's always working. The king can't sleep. Now, who would have ever known that this case of insomnia is the work of God? And yet it is. It reminds me of what the proverb says, that God can direct the heart of a king as surely as he sets the course of a river. Here Xerxes is tossing and turning. I imagine every time that that his eyes started to close, God jabs him and wakes him up. Not only does God orchestrate this case of insomnia, but God even orchestrates the cure. Think with me a moment about the cure and how unique this is. You see, here's a king who had a number of options. He could have called for any number of his servants to come in and entertain him. He could have ordered his chefs to cook up some of the finest delicacies in the Persian Empire. And we've already seen from chapter 1 that he had a number of concubines. I mean, there's all kinds of things that Xerxes could have done throughout the course of the night because he couldn't sleep. And yet, what is it that he does? He calls for the chronicles of the kings to be read. Folks, you think God's in that? Absolutely. 
Now, was it an ego thing? Probably so, because he wants to read in the Chronicles uh, of, of his reign some of the things that he's done that I'm sure he's very proud of. He's wanting to hear some of those things read to him all over again. And folks, think about this too. Out of, out of everything in the Chronicles of the Kings that could have been read, what's read is this particular case that we saw earlier in the book of Esther where Mordecai had uncovered a plot against the king's life. And the plot was investigated. It was found out to be so, to be the case, to be an accurate report. And so the king had had those two eunuchs put to death. And he says, what's been done for Mordecai who uncovered this plot against my life? Well, nothing's been done, King. What? Nothing's been done for that that guy who saved my life? Nothing's been done. Folks, even that is not a coincidence. Had Mordecai been recognized and rewarded way back there when it had happened five years earlier, had he already been rewarded... then what do you suppose would have happened? There wouldn't have been the occasion to order, to, to, to order the recognition of Mordecai now. Mordecai would have already been recognized, already rewarded. And who knows, in five years, the king's memory might have been short and he might, he might have still bought into Haman's wicked schemes. So even the delay in Mordecai being recognized and rewarded, even that is God's doing. God's perfect timing. Everything about this is God's perfect timing. Folks, never forget this. God knows what he's doing. Now, I tell you, there are things that happen that we don't understand. There are things that happen we don't like, we don't understand. If we could have written the script some other way, we would write the script some other way. You see, we're finite. But God's understanding is infinite. Isaiah 55, God says, My ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. God is sovereign over everything. God has been weaving a plan to rescue the Jewish people. And so everything needed to happen a particular way, and it needed to happen at just the right timing. And so right here in chapter 6, I want you to think about the sovereignty of God. And think of all of the ways that the sovereignty of God is playing out. Haman has built gallows to hang Mordecai on the very next day. 
The king can't sleep that night. The servant reads the chronicles of the kings. Not only does he read the chronicles, but again he reads at the very point where it's discovered that Mordecai has never been recognized and rewarded. God is in charge. We need to remember that. Whether it has to do with life circumstances or whether it has to do with recognition, God knows what he's doing. And what does Paul ask in Romans 8.31? If God is for us, who can be against us? And what's the answer to that? Nobody. If God is for us, nobody can be against us. We've got to understand that life is not an accident. You know, again, David says in Psalm 139, before we live, David said, before I lived even one of my days, God had them all numbered. God knew the boundaries of my life. God knew when I would, would be born and when I would die. God ordained it all. Folks, life is not an accident. I think the world would do well to remember that. Because you know, in school today, what are, what are our kids and grandkids taught? They're taught that life is just one big accident. Just one big coincidence. Just evolution, chance, forces of nature. Should it surprise us that we see people growing up and acting like barbarians when they've been taught that their whole lives? Right? Because they've been taught. They've been taught in school. There's no God. There's nothing out there. It's just you. It shouldn't surprise us the way some people some young people grow up in what they think and what they do. But the Bible makes it so clear to us, the world and everything in it has been placed here by God. And life has a purpose. And history has a purpose. There's a God over all creation who's working out His purposes. We don't believe in the God of the deist. The God of the deist. They said that the, the analogy they gave was the clockmaker God. That like a clockmaker would make a clock and wind it up and, and would uh, set it up on a, a shelf and then just walk away from it and let the clock wind down. That's the deist view of God. But that's not the biblical view of God. The biblical view of God is not only did, did he create us and create everything, but he holds it all together. He sustains it all. And he's still very much involved. Life's not always easy. And life is certainly not always fair. But God knows what he's doing. And not only, uh, not only in his purposes 
does he know what he's doing, but also in his timing. He knows what he's doing. Mordecai may not have appreciated at the time being overlooked, but folks, actually God was doing him a favor at the time. Mordecai and his people needed recognition now more than they did at the end of chapter 2. All of this is a lesson for us to keep our focus on God. Don't be discouraged. Don't be bitter. Just keep casting your care upon God because He cares for us. He's in charge of the smallest details. I want you to think of something that's happened just recently. The world... The country, the world, the Christian community has recently recognized a very significant life. Is it any accident that there was a farmer in Charlotte who gathered together a group of other farmers and businessmen who gathered them together at his barn for prayer meetings, and those men were going to pray. What, what they did pray is that God would raise up somebody from Charlotte who would take the gospel to the nations. Little did that farmer who organized those prayer meetings know that it would be his son, Billy Graham, that God raised up. And Billy Graham talks about going to these series of meetings. He, he went to these tent revival meetings that Mordecai Ham was preaching. And finally through the week, you know, God, he knew God was getting a hold of his heart. And one, that one meeting, he, was, he got up and he was pacing back and forth across the back. And he knew that God was speaking to him, and he yielded his life to the Lord. He was saved. And shortly thereafter, he was called to preach. But folks, I think it all started with that man, Billy Graham's dad, gathering a group of men together to pray that God would raise up somebody from Charlotte to take the gospel to the nations. Accident? I don't think so. God's a God of details. We also need to remember that God's delays are not God's denials. God had not forgotten Mordecai. Well, the second thing I want you to see with me is a morning of decision. A morning of decision. Look again in verse 4. The king said, who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? 
Now, knowing how it all turns out, you've got to love these verses. You've absolutely got to love these verses, the irony in them. Because Haman has evidently been, been up all night supervising the building of the gallows. On the way to meet with Xerxes and Esther again, did, did he stop by the gallows one last time and say to, him, say to himself with a chuckle, I'll have your head today, Mordecai. Today's the day I'm going to get you finally. Here's the king. He's excited to get some advice from his number two man, his prime minister. He thinks this is a great day. This is a day to celebrate and honor a man who saved my life and never been recognized. And here's Haman. He's excited to finally be rid of his enemy. And, and he thinks, I already have permission to have the Jews executed. And I'm going to start it off right today. I'm going I'm to get the king to say that I can kill my enemy and be done with him forever. Both of these men have their own stories to tell. Both of them are excited. It's kind of like, let me go first. No, let me go first. No, let me go first. The king being king, he gets to go first. You can see Haman's chest sticking out. Well, who would he want to honor and recognize more than me? Surely he's talking about me. So Haman lays it on thick, doesn't he? If he's talking about me, boy, I'm going I'm to get him to honor me right. You need, to, you need to put the king's robes on this man. You need to put him on, on your animal. You need to put a crown on that you've worn. You need to have a servant, an honored servant, parade him through town and make announcements through town. Haman's thinking, man, today's my day. I'm going to be recognized. Everybody's going to see how important I am. I'm not only am I going to kill my enemy, but I'm going to be recognized. All this is going on. The king likes his idea. King says, good. Go do that for Mordecai the Jew. <laughs> Oh, man, don't you know, can you imagine Haman's face? I, I mean, his countenance just dropped. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Amen? Mordecai has never been anything other than a humble man at the king's gate, simply carrying out his assignment. He's never de demanded attention. He's never demanded recognition. He's a godly man. He loves God's people, tries to do the right thing. On the other hand, here's Haman. He's never been anything other than a wicked man. He's manipulative. He's cunning. He's deceptive. He's angry. He's bitter. He hates Mordecai. He hates Mordecai's people. He loves himself. He loves recognition. He's full of pride. 
But you see, God doesn't forget his promises, does he? Remember what God told Abraham? What did God tell Abraham in Genesis 12? I'll bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. God remembers his promises. You see, Haman, Haman hadn't realized he's, he's gotten in way over his head. Because he's trying to fight against God. And that's a losing proposition every time. Well, third thing I want you to see is a day of disgrace. A day of disgrace. Verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horses you've said. Do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave, leave out nothing that you've mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. One commentator has said the words that Haman had to proclaim as he, as he led Mordecai through the square and, uh, and announced Mordecai's honor. One commentator says that that those words must have been like gravel in his mouth. Everybody had to bow before Mordecai. This is what Haman had wanted Mordecai to do for him, and now everybody is having to do this for Mordecai. Haman has got to be shell-shocked. There is no way now he can ask for Mordecai's life. He knows that. All of his deceit, all of his hatred now comes crashing in around him. And he's a disgraced man. But apparently Mordecai is unchanged. He goes back to the king's gate. He goes back to what he was doing before. You don't see in the text here that he gloats. He doesn't rub Haman's nose in it. In fact, you get the impression here that, that Mordecai never says anything unkind to Haman the whole day as Haman's leading him around. That's how people of character are. People of character can be promoted without it ruining them. Haman, on the other hand, scampers home in shame. Now, notice his wife and his friends don't offer any encouragement. In fact, they recognize his disgrace and, and they, they basically say, you're going down, buster, and you can see him taking a step away from him almost. While they're all talking, the king's eunuchs rush in and and hasten Haman to his last supper. Things are 100% out of Haman's control now. He's tried to control everything. Everything is out of his control now. And the moment of his demise 
is soon to arrive. Great reversals. Folks, I want you to turn with me over to Galatians chapter 6 for a moment. Galatians chapter 6. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But look at Galatians chapter 6 and and begin reading with me in verse 7. What's what's verse 7 say? Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of well-doing, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Mordecai is reaping good. He's done good. He's reaping good. But look at Haman. He's reaping what he's sown too, right? Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Folks, we, we, reap, we reap what we sow. We reap more than we sow. And we reap later than we sow. Right? What we sow, more than we sow, and later than we sow. But we, we reap what we sow. God's not mocked. The chickens are coming home to roost for Haman now, aren't they? Haman had no respect for Mordecai. He had no love for him. He had no mercy for him. No mercy at all. He was going to have him executed without just cause. Instead, it's all coming back on him. Now, Haman is disgraced. We better examine what's in our hearts. Is there pride? Is there hatred? Is there destruction? God can turn unrighteousness right back onto our very own heads. God is a master at great reversals because God knows what's in the heart to begin with. Some lessons I want to close with tonight. Lesson number one, God is just and the rewarder of those who seek him. God is just and is the rewarder of those who seek him. Secondly, God knows how to look after his children. God knows how to look after his children. And lastly, 
God knows how to judge the wicked. God knows how to judge the wicked. You know, folks, you look at the world today and you look at some of the things that are going on in the world today. And what, what do God's people sometimes say? Where's God? Does He not see? Does He not hear? Does He not know? Yes, He does. And folks... Don't worry about it. It'll be dealt with in his time, his way. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, But be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Don't worry about it. God will settle accounts one day. You look at the world and you question what's going on. God will deal with everything. He's just. God is just. He knows how to reward His children. He knows how to look after His children. He knows how to deal with the wicked. Of course, we need to be praying for the wicked that they'll repent and turn to Him while there's still time. We don't wish bad on anybody. But just know that God is able to settle accounts. And God is able to reward you for your faithful service. Just like he did with Mordecai. He's sovereign. Well, next week, we're going to pick up and see how this thing begins to end. Okay?